Welcome to the Colby Cast, episode 123. Thank you for joining us. Today, Bonnie and I are joined by Monsignor James Shea, president of the University of Mary in Bismarck, North Dakota. In addition to hearing about beautiful North Dakota and the innovative things going on at the University of Mary, we had a chance to discuss the apostolic age in which we live, the modern mind's romance with utopias, and the wonderful blessings that we as Catholics have received. We hope that you'll enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, liturgical musician, popcorn and podcast fanatic, and Colby homeschooling mom to four lads and lasses of middle and high school age. And this is Stephen, homeschooling father of five and director of development for Colby Academy. been to North Dakota, but it's been a while. It was since my, when I was a young boy, we would travel out there towards the Mount Rushmore and South Dakota, and then, you know, kind of swing up back through some of the things, but it's been a long time. Okay. I, 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 being from a more Southern climb, the, the weather, the winter weather up there is, is a bit daunting to me, but I bet not for you so much, hailing from Wisconsin and all. Recently, our Colby faculty took part in a day of in-service a highlight of which was an address to them by Monsignor James Shea, president of the University of Mary in Bismarck, North Dakota. Monsignor's visit with the Colby faculty was just a dose of inspiration and encouragement they needed to start the school year on a high note with the goals and hallmarks of Catholic education front and center. It is our great pleasure and privilege to welcome Monsignor Shea to the Colby cast today. Hello. Hello, Bonnie. It's good to be with you. I'm I'm honored to be on the Colby cast. And even though people can't see me, I'm not wearing a parka. It's only <laughs> September here. <laughs> okay, so when will you need that? Pretty soon? So yeah, I, I think that people from southern climes, as you say, uh, <laughs> overestimate uh, the severity of our winters. Okay. <laughs> February can be pretty rough. February, late January too. Um, but yeah, no, we have a we have a, a beautiful climate up here. The summers are glorious. Uh, we don't have much humidity, but it's warm, uh, and the falls are beautiful too. And so, yeah, I I, I don't know. I, and I think that the students who come here from from uh, warmer climates it toughens them up. And the world is is a place where you need to be toughened up. And so we feel like it's part of our mission uh, to be in this climate. It's the whole person, indeed, right? <laughs> <That's good. laughs> right. <laughs> Well, as I have been preparing for this conversation, Monsignor, I learned that you grew up on a farm not all that far from the University of Mary, but it hasn't been a straight shot from there to where you are now. Would you take us through some of the stops along the way? Sure. Yeah, I grew up on a farm just north of Hazleton, North Dakota, which is a town of about 200 people. Uh, it was a, a grain and dairy farm, so I grew up milking cows and uh, making hay and harvesting wheat and barley and oats and corn. Uh, and all of those different kinds of things. I'm the oldest of eight children. My mother is a convert to Catholicism. She grew up Lutheran, and my dad's from an old Irish family. And um, so there were seven boys all in a row, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Wow. And then at the very end, the cherry on the top, uh, was my little sister, who just had her third baby. She is 20 years younger than I am. And so there's a 20-year spread, eight children. I'm the oldest and she is the youngest. So I grew up on a, on a farm, uh, and uh, you know, the, the faith was just very important to us. Uh, it was kind of the last gasp of Christendom, and I know that we'll talk about that 
in a little bit, but um, but it was a solidly Christian culture in Hazleton, North Dakota in the late 80s and very early 90s um, when I was growing up. I graduated from high school in 1993, and okay. I went uh, for two years on a full scholarship to Jamestown College, which was, it's, it's a little Presbyterian school. There are only two private colleges in all of North Dakota, uh, Jamestown College, which is Presbyterian, and the University of Mary, which is Catholic, were the only two uh, privates. There is a very small uh, Assemblies of God school uh, called Trinity Bible College uh, as well. But anyway, so I didn't come to the University of Mary, even though it was 38 miles from the farm, partly because my parents had milk cows, and I knew that that was close enough <laughs> that I could easily go home for chores. And so, uh, so I, I went for two years to Jamestown. I studied uh, English literature and history, and I sang in the choir and played trombone and acted in some plays and um, that kind of thing. And then, uh, and then I discerned that God was calling me, and I knew it, I knew it for many years, I think, but I discerned that God was calling me uh, to enter the seminary. And so at that point, I went to Catholic University in Washington, D.C., and I was there for three years. It was a special scholarship program where a person in three years uh, could finish the bachelor's degree and also do a pontifical master's degree, a licentiate, in philosophy. Um, and so I got my license in philosophy there and then went to Rome for four years. I was at the Pontifical North American College at the Vatican and studied at both the Gregorian and the Lateran universities. And while I was there, I was uh, a chaplain at the Children's Hospital of Rome, Bambino Gesù, Baby Jesus Hospital. And then uh, I was chaplain uh, after I was ordained a deacon for the University of St. Thomas's Catholic Studies program. They have a campus on the Tiber River in Rome, and I was their chaplain. Then I came home uh, and was ordained a priest in 2002 at the age of 27. And uh, I spent uh, seven years in Catholic secondary education. I was associate pastor in uh, a couple of different parishes, and then I had my own parish out in cowboy land in the very western reaches of North Dakota, um, two small parishes. Uh, but that whole time uh, when I was doing that, I was teaching at Catholic high schools. So I taught at St. Mary's Central High School here in Bismarck and then at Trinity High School in uh, Dickinson. And to teach at Trinity, because again, I was in cowboy land. I drove 70 miles round trip every day uh, for that. And so that uh, I, I did that until 2009. And that's when I became president of the University of Mary. Uh, and so I've been here now, oh gosh, almost 14 years uh, as president. Uh, and uh, you, you're right, Bonnie, I'm about as close to home <laughs> as a person could be. Because the, if you drive south from the University of Mary, the, the first parish you hit is my home parish. But you know about prophets in their hometowns, <laughs> uh, how that would be. And so I'm the closest I could be. <laughs> well, your book, From Christendom to Apostolic Mission, is a hot topic in many Catholic parishes, schools, and chanceries. Would you tell us the origin story and premise of the book? Yeah, so this is a great surprise uh, for me, Bonnie, because the, the book really simply arose. There's nothing dramatic or revolutionary about it. It's a, it's a very brief essay that really encapsulates something of the teaching of the last few pontificates about the need for a new evangelization. And uh, it was the fruit of conversation between uh, a number of good friends who love the church, and we had thought this through, and 
And, uh, you know, a draft was circulating for many years before we finally put it into publication. And what happened is uh, when the pandemic descended uh, and things grew kind of quiet on the campus as a result of it, that's when I looked at this dusty manuscript, which was sitting on my desk, and I said, I've been wanting for years to get this into print, primarily so that it could uh, provide kind of a, a, f a governing vision for the University of Mary, for the community that, that I care for here. And so uh, we, we put it into print in May of 2020, and uh, I think we might have printed 900 copies or something like that. We have a little press house here, University of Mary Press. Uh, it's not a, a great big, it's not like, you know, Stanford or Yale University Press. It's just a small uh, imprint. But whenever we do a book, you know, even if it's on some obscure topic, we'll throw it up on online and put it on Amazon, you know. And uh, I, we were just very surprised because, you know, we we almost circulated the entire first printing just to people here at the University of Mary. And we were all kind of reading it and and I was answering some questions about it, and that's it. Then all of a sudden, on Amazon, it starts to take off. And by September, October of 2020, we started selling something like 100, 150 copies every single day out of our bookstore. <laughs> and so it was super embarrassing. And we were struggling and, and scrambling to get more copies into print. And bishops were calling, asking for thousands of copies and all of that. And I think, again, it's a very simple text, uh, and the premise is that um, starts with this quote from the Aparacita document, which was a statement of the Latin American bishops, um, which was really written by Archbishop Jorge Mario Bergoglio, who was the Archbishop of Buenos Aires at that time and became Pope Francis, uh, that we are not living in an age of change, but a change of age not in an age of change, but a change of the ages. The idea is that there are certain moments in human history when you can draw a bright, bright line between everything that went before and everything which comes after, uh, and that we find ourselves in such a moment, uh, a, a, a seismic shift, a cultural um, change from a, what would be called a Christendom society uh, or a Christendom ruling vision to an apostolic age uh, or an apostolic moment. And so uh, a Christendom moment or a Christendom age uh, is an age or uh, a civilizational situation when uh, the, the primary foundations of, um, of a culture are grounded in Christian thought and teaching and truth. Uh, when uh, the individuals in the society, even subconsciously, take as the basis of their thought the vision of the gospel um, even if it's not very deeply lived, it's subconsciously assumed. And the institutions and uh, major cultural structures of uh, a society like that, uh, schools and uh, law and policy and um, uh, cultural um, practices, uh, those things are based upon the Christian vision. And uh, over the past 300 years or so, uh, we live in a society that has been steadily and uh, consciously ridding itself of that Christian basis, such that now all of a sudden, as Pope St. Paul VI once said, uh, the whole of the West has become mission territory again. Everything 
uh, all of the countries that were once deeply Christian uh, are now not Christian, are, are secular and, and growing in their secularity, such that we find ourselves in a set of circumstances analogous to the church in the first 300 years of its, of its existence when the Christian vision was, um, was uh, teaching in opposition to a strong founding cultural vision of Greco-Roman culture. Uh, and so we find ourselves in a new apostolic age. And so as a result, uh, the old strategies and ways of doing things no longer will work. And if, if, if we don't recognize that we're in a change of the ages, uh, if we don't recognize that there's this great shift happening from Christendom to an apostolic age, uh, then all of our strategies will be wrong. We'll go about business as usual, and uh, things will collapse all around us. And we see... Um, we see uh, evidence of that happening already. So that's the premise of the book. But of course, it's not meant to, you know, uh, send people into the into the throes of depression. It's meant uh, to be a clarion call and say, no, the gospel is as fresh as it's ever been, and uh, we don't get to choose the times in which we live. Uh, but we have now. I'm thinking here of Gandalf, right, uh, speaking with Frodo when he says something to the effect. At Bag End, uh, he says something to the <laughs> to the effect of, um, "I wish none of this had had happened." He's saying, "I wish the ring had never come to me." And Gandalf says, "So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the times we have been given." And uh, that's 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 the circumstance in which we find ourselves now, as followers of Jesus, as strong Catholics, as people who who believe the gospel. Uh, we know that we're in a cultural moment in which uh, we can really live the gospel uh, boldly and well, and that conquering spirit, the high-heartedness of living for Christ, can shine more brightly than ever as the world around us grows darker. I definitely, uh, I I loved the the call of the book because I, you know as a as a convert and then as a graduate of Thomas Aquinas College in the late '90s, um, getting this intellectual background of the church and looking at different ways of of discussing things. Everything, a lot of everything that I've been doing since that time has been you know reading and thinking about the doctrines and the history and the. And I've been finding myself more and more as I have conversations with people and, and I start I start from a Christian background. And so we'll be talking about some issue and I'm I'm find that the the principles that I'd like to build an argument on aren't accepted. You know, there it's it's gone. You know, it's this was a reading the book and, and going over it and thinking about it was like, yeah, I, there's something prior to all of this now that that we have to do and i'm ill prepared for that really i mean i'm i haven't prepared myself for that sort of apostolic um evangelization or evangelization in apostolic age i guess well let me say first of all Stephen, that you said you graduated from thomas aquinas college in santa paula huh? and so i mean this is one of the most impressive institutions around uh and the people who graduate from there people like you are deeply well read and so i'm amazed that you would call this a book at all <laughs> you know people come up and they're like oh this that book is just one of the best books i've read in years and i'm like you should read books they're really good books in the world that you know are, are media 
and longer than 90 pages, you know? And so uh, I'm deeply flattered to have, uh, to have someone from uh, Thomas Aquinas College uh, say that, that this small essay was useful for them. I think it's a good synopsis or an attempt at a good synopsis of the moment in which we find ourselves. And I think for people who, who really are formed well in mind, it, it does help to clarify the way in which we can deploy the great and deep resources of the tradition uh, in a more savvy fashion. And so it provides an interpretive lens. Well, it occurs to me that Colby families are acting in an apostolic fashion, whether or not they call it that, really by approaching their children's education in the manner they are, or at least working toward forming their children to approach the world with this apostolic mindset that you're describing, like recognizing that this is where they're headed, whether that's been intentional from the get-go or a more recent decision in light of experiences or in or observances of other school settings. Um, so what, what might you suggest for specific ways that we as home educating families can apply the tenets of, of the book to our daily lives? Yeah, Bonnie, and so I, I want to affirm what you said, that, that it is the case that Colby families would be much more uh, in tune with this question of living in an apostolic age than probably a lot of other people. Uh, one of the things which, um, which I've observed, especially in the last few years, but anybody who's been a priest for five minutes has someone come up to them, a grandparent or a parent, and they're devastated, and they say, "Oh, Father, we don't, we just don't know what we did wrong." You know, uh, my wife and I, or my husband and I, we we did everything that our parents did. You know, our parents sent us to Catholic schools and got us our sacraments and taught us how to pray and taught us, you know, the basics of traditional morality and uh, introduced us to God and the saints and 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 uh, we did the very same thing for our children, and uh, we stayed. Our parents did that, and we stayed, and we did that for our children, and, and they're gone. And our grandkids, they're not even baptized. And it, people carry around so much deep shame around that question without the realization that, you know, there was a time when the ambient culture was really of great assistance to parents in the raising of children. One of the great difficulties of an apostolic age is that it's much, much harder to raise children, and it's much, much harder to build and to sustain institutions. You know, I, I think about uh, here at the University of Mary, we're, we're not an enormous place. We don't have 14,000 students, but we have 4,000 students. Sometimes I feel like I'm building a house in a gale wind, you know, that, that it's just so difficult. That as soon as you deal with one sort of seemingly diabolical challenge or, or uh, stern setback, the, the very next one pops up. You're playing whack-a-mole all day long. And I think parents who are raising children, it's never easy to raise children to love the invisible world. <laughs> it's never easy to raise children uh, in such a way uh, that, because they have fallen natures, uh, in such a way that, that, that they're fully alive to the world of faith. Uh, but it's, it's yet more challenging in, in, a, in a civilization which is which is obsessed with the merely visible, uh, in, in which uh, there's a scientistic uh, kind of aspect uh, or, or foundation to, to thought and teaching. And so Colby parents already have recognized that and said, you know, I think in the times in which we live, 
it might not be enough to go about things business as usual. And so as primary educators of our children, we're going to need to find a trusted partner uh, who is able really to help us uh, and, and assist us uh, in the work that we're doing. And Colby Academy is that uh, for your parents. And so I think that that, that 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 is a great testament. And then faithful colleges and universities become that as well. And that's why we're so grateful for initiatives like Colby Academy, because we know that you take that seriously, that the parents whom you serve take that seriously. And there might have been a time when nobody, nobody reasonable would have thought, I'm going to let my child go halfway across the country to study in North Dakota where they might die of frostbite or, you know, uh, a cowboy gunshot. <laughs> Both of which are not immediate dangers, by the way. I just want to go on the record saying that. Um, but, uh, but, but now, in the times in which we live, uh, with the culture uh, in, in many ways so toxic, if it's received um, in an indiscriminate way, um, this is a time in which those partnerships, the educational partnerships, are all the more important. And so I think, you know, Colby parents are already thinking along the lines of uh, this apostolic age, the intentionality uh, which is necessary to raise children in the times in which we live. Uh, it's really important. What I would say, though, and this is different from the advice that I think I would give uh, to most other listeners to a general podcast, you know, or if I was speaking uh, to a large parish or something like this, I, I think that, that I would say to, to Colby parents, uh, the, and this is from my personal experience, I think, uh, here at the University of Mary, I, I think that, that to engage uh, in the great and sacred work of raising children in the times in which we live, uh, to, to surround that in prayer and good discernment and find good um, uh, partners like Colby Academy, all that's important. But let's never forget the joyful, conquering spirit of the gospel and the potency of sort of the sweeping mythic narrative, uh, which is true uh, of, of Catholic teaching. Because I think that there, there can be a tendency to, uh, to sink into a kind of fear or cynicism, and that's tremendously contagious. And, and so I, I do know that, that with some frequency, we'll have students who arrive here raised in some of the best families that you can imagine who love God, who love uh, worship of God and, and the Mass and, and the liturgy and know how to pray the rosary. But it takes a little while for them uh, just to, to relax into themselves <laughs> and to say, you know what? Uh, the world is not collapsing all around us because God is king <laughs> and, and Jesus has conquered and the Holy Spirit is real and Mary is, and the saints are powerful and protecting me. You know what I mean? And so what I would say is that in an apostolic age, uh, it's not for us to, to, to sort of... Um, uh, circle the wagons or uh, to become paranoid or cynical, but rather to say, oh my goodness, these are times in which people of faith are meant to really show up. These are the, this is the age in which we can really shine. Does that make sense? Uh, maybe I'm being too vague about it, but I think it's important for us not to get fearful because that's exactly what the enemy wants, and we can't give him that. That that came so much to mind recently. Uh, I was talking to Bonnie before the show that you know I'd been thinking of of when I was reading your book of 
that was my experience like with the the people outside the church but then recently we I, there was a situation in our parish where some friends some some lovely people that were in the parish start were leaving for a set of vacantist church and trying to engage them in arguments or like okay here's what they say here's what the arguments we can put out but it became very obvious that there was an underlying difference a a, a fear and um, a woundedness and things that that they weren't looking at the arguments anymore they there was already decision that the church had hurt them and that it had gone astray and there wasn't so when I was thinking, I'm a convert. I loved when I came in that finally there, you know, there's the Pope and there's the truth and all, there's all of this. That was so consoling to me because knowing our Lord would be with us always. But I already could see because we didn't, we hadn't established that sort of love and trust. There's a, there's a, there's an inclination to think everything's falling apart and start deciding what you're going to throw out and throwing out the great stuff with, with, uh, with all the bad, I guess. But. Yeah, well, Stephen, I think we're on the verge of needing to uh, record a couple of podcasts because in respect <laughs> to that, you know, I think uh, one of the great dangers of, of the time in which we live, uh, one of the great uh, sort of uh, difficulties is, is the modern mind's romance with uh, utopias. In other words, and you remember that Thomas More wrote the book Utopia in 1516, and the title of it was kind of an inside joke. Utopia means no place. And so in a fallen world, there's not a perfect society. Uh, but one of the, the difficulties that we see within the church are these extremes in which people are positing utopias, you know, secular progressives with kind of within the church are, are uh, positing this type of utopia of justice and peace somewhere out in the future. And uh, traditionalists can tend to posit a utopia of nostalgia in the past, uh, some, you know, past age when, uh, when things were just a golden age, you know. Uh, and if we could ask the saints of those so-called golden ages, they would tell us, no, no, we, the, the sun was hot, we were weary, we thought everything was falling apart, but we were faithful, and we were joyful, and we realized that what's interesting, and this is, this is sort of the, the premise of some other work um, that, that I've been thinking through uh, with uh, the same group of friends, um, that, that that we have this idea that the church is a utopian society because uh, we're always trying to to get at utopias uh, in the modern world, and so the church is meant to fly above the ails of the world, dispensing its medicines, forgetting that actually God set it up quite different. That 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 the main battle for humanity takes place within the church in every age, and the church takes into itself. Uh, in every age, all of the different uh, maladies and bad ideas and wickedness uh, and infidelity of the time, there's a great battle that happens within the church, and the church then Im generates the immunity from the midst of that battle for itself and also for a needful world. And that's the, that's the constant seed crystal of renewal in every single age. And so we're fighting a great battle in the midst of the church and inside of the church is where you need to stay so that you can be at your post. <laughs> and that's important. If you leave for some other made up thing, for some set of a contest, uh, dream world, uh, then it's not just that, that you yourself are missing out on being integrated into the bark of Peter, it's also that we don't have the benefit of you fighting side by side for the true, the beautiful, and the good, uh, because that's what really makes the difference, and that's how 
the great um, the great triumphs in Christian history happen. They don't happen in a uh, in a utopian fog. Yeah. Certainly, when I when whenever you say that, it just becomes like, oh yeah, that's that should be so obvious to us. Like we love that, you know, when the church was young and everybody was on fire and the Holy Spirit was just at work. And it's yeah, but everybody's people are getting martyred left and right. That wasn't an easy easy time. And to look through the whenever you know these things come up with if people were complaining about the church, it's, I always go back to Pope Paul Pope Paul the sixth. No, Pope Alexander the sixth. I'm sorry. The oh born, yeah, right. Yeah, what a great like, guy. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, we've had we've had stuff going on in the church, but that was even during an, an era of Christendom. So again, seeing how right or when there's three popes or you know the church. No, I see. No. Yeah, the, so in in there, I think there we have a deficit, Stephen, of gratitude. And so um, it is the case that there were long periods of history, even in the midst of Christendom, when there were wicked popes, the Medicis, you know, and all of these things, and tremendous corruption, the Borgias, all this stuff. We don't recognize, those of us who were born in the 20th century, who are we uh, to have John Paul II and Benedict XVI? Who are we to have G.K. Chesterton and Belloc and C.S. Lewis? I mean, the, the, and, and, you know, th think of all, of, think of Flannery O'Connor. I mean, it, it was, a, it was a, it, the, the time of the Great World Wars and communism and Nazism. It was a dark period in human history, the bloodiest uh, century in human history. But also, it was a time of tremendous spiritual regeneration. Mother Teresa, I mean, think of the saints of our lifetime and how impressive they were, and yet we're not grateful because we think that things need to be better than they really are. Well, we need to be better than we really are. That's a different thing. <laughs> yeah. Yes. True. Wow. Yes. Yep. Well, let's talk a little bit about the University of Mary for those who are not familiar. Um, I think the first time it registered on my radar screen was when longtime Colby advisor Celeste Cuellar, she's a friend of the Colby cast, as we like to say, she mentioned it as we were preparing an episode on Newman Centers and Catholic uh, student ministry on university campuses. She brought up the partnership that, that the University of Mary has with Arizona State University. I had no idea. We also are happy to say that we have nine recent Colby graduates, now students at the University of Mary within the past few graduating classes, and we have Colby staff who are you Mary alumni as well. So um, I I won't uh, persist in my questioning about the winter weather attire. I think there's probably you guys take care of that as well. But would you tell us a bit about the University of Mary, maybe some of its um, historical highlights and its defining features? Anything you'd like us to know about the school? Sure. Well, first of all, let me reiterate how grateful we are uh, for the arrival of Colby Academy students here on our campus because we're trying to build something. And so that means that I need students who are well formed because we're we're not kind of um, we're not kind of uh, an enclave school, if you know what I mean. In other words, when you pick up the Newman Guide for choosing a Catholic college, for instance, uh, there are all kinds of amazing faithful colleges and universities on that list, and a good number of them are the kinds of places uh, which you know a relatively small, strong liberal arts curriculum, uh, and you know very nearly everybody at a lot of these colleges are there seeking God and truth. That wouldn't be the case at the University of Mary. Uh, and so a couple of weeks ago, we welcomed 
our incoming freshman class, uh, about 500 students uh, in, the, in the freshman class, and then about 150 transfer students. And so every fall, we've got about 650 new students coming in. And then if you count up all of our graduate programs, our distance campuses, we're, we're a place of about 4,000 students. Uh, and and uh, a lot of them, a large and growing number, are here because they want a great Catholic education at an affordable price a faithful, faithful Catholic education at an affordable price. And so uh, we say that we're the most affordable, serious Catholic university in America. A couple of years ago, uh, the rector of the seminary where I went to uh, in Rome, uh, the former rector, he was Monsignor Timothy Dolan in those days, and now he's the Cardinal Archbishop of New York, but he came in 2013, I think, and he said, he, he was talking about our tuition, and he said, oh my goodness, if, uh, uh, th that's the cost of a steak and two martinis in New York. <laughs> <laughs> and you can get a whole year of college education for that amount. And so we feel like we have a, a moral responsibility, especially for those larger families, uh, to make sure that a University of Mary, Mary education is eminently affordable. So we've got all kinds of generous financial aid that we offer, and our starting price point would be very, very low. Um, and so I, I think that that's one of the most important things to say. You know, we, we feel like we have an ethical obligation to keep faithful Catholic higher education accessible to faithful Catholic families who are being generous with God and generous with the church, bringing children into the world, raising them in the faith. We think that, uh, that, that they deserve to be able to have a place uh, that, that is reasonably priced. And so I think that that's one of the most important parts of, uh, of, of the kind of ethos of the University of Mary. Another part that I should mention is that we do have an entrepreneurial spirit about us. We were founded in 1959 by Benedictine sisters who had come to Dakota Territory before we were even a state in 1878, uh, and who the next morning stepped off a train and started a, a primary and secondary school, and then started the only hospital between Minneapolis and Seattle on the, on the Northern Corridor, and then started Mary College, which is now the University of Mary in 1959. And so those women were pioneer women, you know what I mean, very uh, amazing. They would, you know, they would, uh, they knew, they, they came sometime after Lewis and Clark, but right after General George Custer had ridden out uh, from Fort Lincoln here in Bismarck to the Battle of the Little Bighorn. And so it's this sort of amazing kind of Western story. We still have that in our DNA. We have this entrepreneurial spirit. So we've got a campus in Rome. We've got programs in Peru. We've got a big and growing Catholic studies program. We have a, a, a very, uh, very amazing year-round campus initiative where students can come here, do three semesters a year, and finish their bachelor's degree in 2.6 years and their master's degree in four years. And we're doing it not as sleepy summer school, we're doing it as a full, robust college experience. And we, we just think that, that that new model is so important and the incremental lifetime earnings, incremental lifetime savings and student loan debt reduction from that comes to the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so that's another way in which we're thinking about this differently, our year-round campus initiative. We have, uh, as you mentioned, this big partnership with Arizona State University. ASU is the largest secular public research university in America. They're, they've got, what, 80,000 students trending toward 90,000 now in Tempe, Arizona, right in the Phoenix metro area. 
we have the old church, which is right in the middle of their campus. And so there was a time when the only two buildings in that whole area were the Arizona Normal School, which is now their old main building, and this old brick church, which had been built by, I think, Carmelite Fathers. Now they've built this great big kind of Newman Center around it, and we're there on the campus of Arizona State University offering Catholic Studies courses uh, that seamlessly transfer into every single ASU degree. So you can go to ASU and study anything under the sun and get a major or minor or just take individual courses in Catholic studies from the University of Mary on the ground down there. And we do it as a domestic exchange as well. So students come here to the University of Mary's main campus, they can spend a semester down at ASU. So there, there are seven semesters with us here on our main campus, or six if they go to the Rome campus for a semester, let's say. So they spend six semesters here on the main campus and then two semesters. One can be in Rome, another one, maybe a spring semester, which has February right smack in the middle of it, can be <laughs> in Phoenix, Arizona. And, and that allows, you know, uh, that allows our physics students, those majoring in physics, to take, um, to take a physics course on the person who has the patent on the surface of the International Space Station. You know what I mean? These are physicists who I can't hire here at the University of Mary, but they can have at this huge public research university. And for every course that a University of Mary student from the main campus takes from Arizona State University, then uh, the University of Mary offers to an ASU student down there a Catholic Studies course. And so it's a domestic exchange, which is really a, a, a wonderful uh, thing. And so, yeah, I, I think that those are, those are various things. We, have, we play NCAA Division II athletics. We have 17 varsity sports in NCAA, and then we have an ACHA Division II hockey team, which is back-to-back -back national champions. And so we're a national champion hockey school as well. Uh, we have the number one nursing program in the United States of America. People don't believe that. And here's how that's measured. When nurses um, graduate with a bachelor's degree in nursing, they take a, an exam called the NCLEX exam. And we have the, the strongest record of any school in America of our graduates in nursing passing the NCLEX exam on the first try. And so it's, the, the nursing program is super, super high quality. Of course, we have bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, and a doctoral degree in nursing. Uh, we also have doctoral degrees in physical therapy, occupational therapy, business, and education. Um, we have a large and growing Catholic studies program. Uh, probably, it's probably the fastest growing Catholic studies program in America. It's the second largest. The largest is the original one down at St. Thomas in the Twin Cities, but they cheat because they have an undergraduate seminary. Uh, <laughs> and that gives you kind of a numerical advantage. And I admire those people down there so much. It's a great program. But we have a, a great Catholic studies program. This is helpful for Colby parents. You know, one of the first things that I did when I arrived here more than almost 14 years ago now is that um, I, I was talking with a group of, of parents and donors who really love uh, Catholic education. And they established a scholarship fund, an endowed scholarship fund, uh, whereby um, any graduate of a Catholic high school nationwide, when they come to the University of Mary, the minimum institutional aid commitment that we make to them is free room and board. And that includes students from Colby Academy. Now, oftentimes, the students from Colby Academy qualify for greater scholarships. You know what I mean? So they'll get a big academic scholarship or, uh, or a scholarship for music or something like that. And then they'll probably take that scholarship instead of the free room and board. But 
Um, but what we say is, uh, you know, if you went to a Catholic school, even if you're dumb as a brick, we'll give you free room and board at the University <laughs> of Mary because we so value uh, the uh, investment that your uh, parents made. Uh, and so that's called the Catholic Scholars Program. Uh, and again, probably most Colby Academy students are so smart that they get some gigantic uh, academic scholarship and they don't need that. But anyway, uh, oh, Capella. Capella is brand new. We have, this is an amazing story. We have a sacred music choir, which is audition only, and we fund it. We got the largest academic uh, endowment scholarship that we've ever received was to establish this this chapel choir called Capella. And so we had this vision, it was a crazy vision, that we wanted to scholarship the arts in the way that that um, that sports is scholarship in the NCAA. So my football coach, if he wants a linebacker or if he wants a quarterback, he can leverage. He has so many full scholarships kind of in his pot, and he can split them up and give give a fourth of a full scholarship to one person, half of a full scholarship to another. Or if he can give a full full ride to this one football player, he he really really needs to get. And so I've watched that for years. It's tremendously expensive, by the way. It's just very very <laughs> expensive, and I. I've, I've always thought, well, darn it, why don't we do something like that for the arts? And so we established this scholarship. My chapel choir director, if she needs a Russian bass or if she needs a particular kind of alto, she can go out and leverage scholarships in just the same way. And it's amazing. You should, they're in their second year now. You should hear them sing. It's unbelievable. So those are just a few things about the University of Mary. Well, the first time I ran across you was when I was reading about your your shortened um, bachelor's programs or the condensed thing because right, I you're was on campus, I, yeah, yeah. That was I was just thinking I had been thinking about how Catholic higher education needs to change because you know sometimes I would get these students that that I would have who I was like, oh, you should go to one of these good Catholic schools, but they're like, no, I can't get that. I'll be there's so much debt. But then I saw that and thought, okay, here's an institution that's remaining Catholic, being strongly a strong Catholic identity, but they're being innovative. And I guess that goes with both keep the cost low, but think of new ways to to keep that down. That that really stood out. Um, so you're on my daughter's list. Oh, that's great. Well, Stephen, I just think it's the dumbest thing in the world. So we we were <laughs> we were um, we were in the midst of this huge oil boom up in North Dakota, right? And so this was this would have been maybe 2012, 2013, and the housing market in North Dakota was competing per square foot cost with Manhattan at that time. I mean, it was just it was unbelievable. And so I'm I'm standing here like in early June on our campus, and the wind is blowing lightly and the sun is shining and it feels for all the world like San Diego. That's how June feels in North Dakota. But our students aren't here because they come when the leaves are changing and they leave when the snow is melting. And I'm like, gosh, you know, I, I wish that they could be here to see this. And I'm in the middle of a housing market that's as tight as Bethlehem on Christmas Eve. And so uh, I've got all I've got 1200 beds sitting here empty. Why? Why do we take the summer off? And then, of course, I went back and thought about it. And you know, colleges and universities uh, in uh, in Brideshead revisited uh, or Downton Abbey time. Uh, you know, you'd go up to Oxford or Cambridge, and then in the summertime you'd come down and stay at the family estate. Uh, and then uh, when higher education came to this country, it was much the same thing. Uh, you know, Harvard and, and Yale were for the elite until the GI Bill after the Great War. 
uh, or after the Second World War, the GI Bill, everybody comes home, but it still worked because we were an agricultural society, and so a person could go to school and then make hay or throw bales or pick rock or, <laughs> or shovel grain uh, in, the, in the summertime. Well, our students primarily, even here in North Dakota, aren't coming from an agricultural environment, and most of them certainly don't come from Downton Abbey. Uh, <laughs> and so as a result, what are they doing? They're working at Dairy Queen in the summer and making minimum wage. And then for the rest of the time, they splash around at the lake or they lay on the couch and drool into the couch, you know. And so we thought, gosh, if we take that minimum wage at Dairy Queen and move it around to the end of uh, to the end of their experience, then they get a real starting salary instead. And the good thing is when you think about and I know we're not supposed to think in simply materialistic terms, but from, from an economic perspective, you always get your first year salary. But the last year salary is the one that's the highest. By that point, you've worked your way up the ranks, and most people at the end of their careers are making the highest salaries that they make. You get an extra year or two of that, that makes a big economic difference for you. And so we just thought that, uh, that this was an innovative way to do it, and we were able to pace it such that year-round campus students still get about seven weeks off every year. When you take fall break and spring break and, and Christmas break and a, a week at the beginning of the summer semester, a week at the end of the summer semester, who gets seven weeks off? It's still pretty leisurely, you know? what I mean? Yeah. It's not yes. like you're going to die uh, living like that. But, but, and so students love it. And so they, the, the summers in North Dakota are so glorious uh, and they just enjoy it a lot. And uh, the danger is that a bunch of them then decide to, to live here. And we're happy with that. But I don't know what our, what our Colby parents think about their, <laughs> their children moving permanently to glorious North Dakota. Well, it's it's tying together now for me. So bringing our first part of the conversation with this, it's looking at the world within an, and seeing that it is changing, it's changed and and being willing to adapt to that and to confront that change and to do something good for, for it. Yeah. And let's let's uh, let's put that in an apostolic mindset, uh, Stephen, because, you know, a lot of the time when you're running a, a faithful university with an innovative mindset, a lot of the time what you're needing to do is have something which is beautiful and attractive, but with, which has a deeper purpose. And so we started our Rome campus, for instance, because we knew that students would want to go over and look at the Colosseum. And so off they go. But then they fall in love with the church <laughs> when they're over there because we take them to see the catacombs and the tombs of the martyrs. And, uh, and they get to see the great churches and the architecture and all that. So that's all beautiful. It's a similar thing with this year-round campus model. In other words, think of the formative aspect of those summers. Summers are not let me just give, give a big major news flash on the Colby cast here. <laughs> Exclusively on the Colby cast, the president of the University of Mary is here to tell you summers are sometimes not very wholesome for college-age students. It's not like, it's not like moral bonanza time. Uh, and so oftentimes, those kind of, uh, those listless, 
sort of empty summer months are times in which a lot of the good things that we're doing during the academic year just slip away. You know what I mean? And, 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 and the, the moral formation and spiritual formation that we're offering on our campus really atrophy. And we have students coming back at the end of the summer, and it's not great. It's good that they go home, uh, but their home is not their home anymore in a certain sense. You know what I mean? And, mm -hmm. and their old friends, uh, you know, it, 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 there, can be, there can be real tricky things there. And so this is an opportunity for us to have them in solid Catholic formation full time during that during that period of time and so it's great but it also works out for them economically because at the end of four years they can come out with an MBA or a master's in Catholic studies you know what I mean or a master of nursing science those are really valuable things to have when you're 23 years old definitely and it sets that tone for I mean after college we don't get the whole summer break like we did growing up. So yeah, kind of yes, helps make Bonnie, that transition. That's, <laughs> that's my other thing. People think that college is supposed to be the, the golden end of adolescence. I think that's all ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It's not the end of adolescence. It's the beginning of adulthood. Mm -hmm. And so I tell the students here, you want to be adults. Deep down, you want that. Adulthood is where all the adventure of life begins. <laughs> yes. Don't stop being a child spiritually, but please stop being a child developmentally. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> when you're on this campus, let's get about the business of adulthood uh, and so yeah I, I think it there's a responsibility that's built into that uh, which is really attractive too so I'm glad for how you're on campus really has taken off that sounds like a great that's fantastic I wasn't aware of that yeah it makes all sorts of sense well on Colby cast episode 116 our colleague Jordan Almanzar told us about some articles he's working on and we are happy to announce that the first one is available for everyone to read at the University of Mary's Prime Matters website. We will link to that in the show notes of this episode. So let's hear about Prime Matters, Monsignor, how it came to be, whom it's intended for, and some of the offerings available. Yeah, well, let me say, first of all, that this article, The Hidden Origins of Victim Culture, which Jordan put up on Prime Matters, or which we put up on Jordan's behalf on Prime Matters, yes. I love it. I'm a big fan of it because it, it, it works perfectly into this from Christendom to Apostolic Mission vision. You know, what he's saying here is that we're downstream from Christianity, and so uh, we have to understand that, that, that our culture, even though it's post-Christian, is different. Being post-Christian is different from being pre-Christian, and so still we're haunted by, we're haunted by the gospel, uh, even if the gospel is kind of twisted uh, into an almost unrecognizable form. I think that, that that insight and the other insights that he makes in this article are really super important, and that's the kind of content that we're trying to get up on Prime Matters. Prime Matters is, is, an, is, a, is a project of educational and intellectual outreach of the University of Mary, and we decided that, that one of the things that we wanted to do was to put up a kind of a vast repository of the Catholic imaginative vision. So you remember in the book from Christendom to Apostolic Mission, we talk about the, 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 the role of imaginative visions in cultures and in societies. And there's a time in which the, the Christian or the Catholic imaginative vision informs the society 
uh, and uh, really uh, provides the basis for its institutions and kind of the mental and emotional furniture of the minds and hearts of the people. And that's a Christian or a Catholic imaginative vision, and that most of us are living now in the midst of a secular, progressive, imaginative vision, which is a different, very potent, uh, sometimes incoherent uh, vision of what human life is all about. And so we said, what would it be like if we gathered up this vast repository of kind of the basic principles and foundations of the Christian or the Catholic imaginative vision and put them up on a website? And what if we did it because we're so tired. I'm just so weary of this this scramble of Catholic celebrity. You know what I mean? Where everybody wants to be the next, okay, come to my YouTube channel. You know what I mean? And I'm the guy with 47,000 Twitter followers and blah, 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 blah. Well, I don't know what Jesus and the angels think about all that, but I think it's dangerous. And so we didn't want to be kind of self-referential about it. So if you go to primematters.com, you can find that there's an oblique connection to the University of Mary, but we don't want it to be like our branding and all that other stuff. And that's why we're, we're so thrilled to have people like Jordan writing for us and others like Ryan Anderson or Peter Kraft involved in the project in, 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 in modest but wonderful ways because they're able in less of a flashy, sexy way uh, to offer real substantive content about uh, the great tradition. So that's what Prime Matters is for. The impetus uh, behind it, Bonnie, is interesting in that we have all of these um, these non-traditional programs, and so a lot of our graduate programs, master's programs, are online or they're blended. So we have we have if you go to the website catholicprofessional.life, catholicprofessional.life, you'll see a gathering of all kinds of non-traditional programs. We have a we have, for instance, an MBA. MA in philosophy dual degree where a person can get their master's degree in philosophy while they're also getting an MBA because we think that that's kind of a pioneering thought. We have the only master of science in bioethics uh, which is faithful to the magisterium in the country and that's a partnership with the National Catholic Bioethics Center. We have these kinds of programs but we're always wondering you know those those programs are taken primarily online with usually a one or two week institute in the beautiful North Dakota summer when they come here to the main campus but they're primarily uh, not taken on the main campus and so we're always thinking how, how do we create that sort of electric intellectual energy of a, of a university uh, for our distance students and we decided that Prime Matters would be a way to do that that it would be a, way, a place where great discussion uh, and thought could happen and so if you go to Prime Matters you'll see that we have great articles we have wonderful interviews we have some videos a lot of our videos are primer videos so for instance there are two brief videos that you can watch which basically encapsulate the fundamental premises of the book from Christendom to Apostolic Mission but other primer videos too about scientism or about um, uh, various things uh, that one wants to be mindful of in the church, that kind of thing. And so Prime Matters is, is a project of educational outreach which we put up first and foremost for our own non-traditional uh, students, those who are taking usually graduate programs from us online so that our professors can assign these accessible, thoughtfully written pieces uh, interviews, videos 
for uh, our students because we want each of our programs academically to be suffused with the Catholic imaginative vision. But then we're really grateful. We have something like 11,000 uh, total subscribers to what we call the first draft, which is an email uh, that we send out, which is kind of, a, it's not like a news roundup like you get. It's kind of a, a, um, a commentary on things that are happening in the world along with great content. We send it out about the time that Chesterton's Pub opens every Thursday on our main campus. We call it the first draft, you know, like a draft of beer. And um, uh, you sit down at a table and, and you enjoy it. So we've got a bunch of eavesdroppers, too, and we're happy about that. And we think that, you know, people like parents and teachers of Colby Academy, these are just th these types of... When I was teaching high school, if I had had prime matters, I would have done backflips. Now I'm too old. But I would have done <laughs> backflips. I would have been so grateful to have this ready material that was accessible. You know, a smart high school kid could make their way through many of these articles and certainly could watch the videos. So that's primematters.com. It's just a it's it's a little service which we want to go about doing in a kind of modest way, uh, but we're excited about it. It kind of shimmers and shines. I'm one of those eavesdroppers, and I I will uh, open the website in a browser tab, and then it'll sit open. Like I'll click from one one to the next, and it'll stay open. It's one of the tabs that stays open until eventually I have to restart my computer. But that Praise takes me God. a while. I could just. Okay, I'm coming back to that, and oh, I want to read that one next. So yes, yes, <laughs> that's great. Yep. No, it's great content, isn't it? And we do, we we try to do a good job, Bonnie. I don't know if you agree, uh, of making uh, it applicable and accessible. We want it mm -hmm. really to uh, to be a great resource and not simply a vanity project. We hate that stuff. I th I think you've nailed it. Yeah, there's been a few times actually, even in meetings or whatever that. We've been talking about something and it's one of those articles what well, did you read that article that just you know was posted here because they're talking about this specific thing and it's so it's it's it has been very pertinent and yeah. so far and you notice that a lot of the a lot of the content is anonymous too that goes back to that old medieval tradition where you'd have some beautiful treatise you know released and the author would be listed as a monk we love that, you know, we love that. And so we kind of have a, uh, an anonymous editorial panel. And you notice it's the same thing with the From Christendom to Apostolic Mission. You know, that's kind of uh, the work of a group of friends. And none of us are looking to get famous. We just want to uh, further the kingdom of Christ. We want him to be famous. We're all into that. Done a lot for that end. We're so grateful for this time we've gotten to spend with you, Monsignor Shea. Thank you so very much for coming to visit with us and, and know of our prayers for you. And I'll be thinking of you in February. <laughs> oh, Bonnie so and Steve, I'm grateful. Thanks for those, thanks for those February thoughts. <laughs> of course, I'll be at our campus in Arizona much of that time. <laughs> I, 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 I will say I'm just very grateful uh, for Colby Academy. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the work that you're doing. I think that it represents the very best of uh, the apostolic spirit, which is necessary in the new age in which we live. And, you know, uh, when, there are thank, when there are thank you lines in heaven, I think the thank you lines for people like you are going to be among the longest. So I'm grateful to you. Thank you. We know that our, our faculty got so much from their time with you and their in-service. Thank you so much for spending this time with our listeners today and us. Thanks again, Monsignor. It's a joy to be with you. God bless you all. Subscribe to the ColbyCast on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss an episode. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating or a review. And as always, feel free to email us at podcast at colby.org.
Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Kolbe, pray for us. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam.